It is such a delight and a pleasure uh, to introduce the Honorable Loretta E. Lynch, the 2017 recipient of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medal in Law. As you all know, but I will tell you anyway, just in case you don't, uh, Loretta Lynch is a distinguished attorney and public servant. She was the 83rd United States Attorney General and the first African-American woman to serve in that role. A little background that you might have an, an inkling about, but maybe not quite uh, uh, this detail. When the Office of the Attorney General was established in 1789, it was created as a one-person part-time position. That is not the job uh, that Loretta Lynch held. Today, the Attorney General oversees the Department of Justice, which has approximately 40 agencies, over 117,000 employees, and an annual budget of almost $30 billion. It is more than just the world's largest law office. As General Lynch has pointed out, and I have to say I'm going to have to steal this in the future, but I will always quote you, the Department of Justice is the only executive department named after an ideal. You just think about that for a second. It is the Department of Justice, not the Department of Law, right? Uh, I think that's really profound. Uh, General Lynch is the daughter of a sharecropper and the daughter, uh, sorry, the granddaughter of a sharecropper and the daughter of a Baptist minister and a teacher and librarian. And she spent her formative years in the South during the civil rights era. Her childhood experiences watching, court, uh, watching local court proceedings with her father inspired her interest in law and the legal system, and her mother encouraged her love for learning and interest in public service. General Lynch was a star early. She was a high school valedictorian. She earned her undergraduate degree, cum laude, in 1981 from Harvard University, majoring in English and American literature. She was a charter member of the Delta Sigma Theta Sororities Harvard chapter. Oh, all right, there you go. Uh, she remained at Harvard for law school, earning her JD in 1984, and there she served as an advisor to the first year moot court competition, and she was a member of the Black Law Students Association. <laughs> if you're cheering for a sorority somewhere else, you got to cheer for Bolsa uh, and the Legal Aid Bureau. Following law school, Lynch worked as a litigator in private practice for the law firm of Cahill, Gordon, and Rendell. She became a prosecutor in 1990, joining the office of the U.S. Attorney General for the Eastern District of New York. She quickly rose in the ranks, ultimately serving as Chief Assistant U.S. Attorney. In 1999, President Bill Clinton appointed her to serve as the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District, a position she held for two years. President Barack Obama then nominated her to serve in this position again in 2010, which she did. Four years later, in 2014, President Obama nominated her to serve as the Attorney General of the United States, and she was confirmed by the Senate the following year. General Lynch has been described as unflappable and the soul of grace under pressure. Such calm served her well as she prosecuted cases that could easily be fodder for showtime dramas, extortion, public corruption, Ponzi schemes, narcotics, street gangs, police brutality, terrorism, the mafia, and human trafficking. She was part of the prosecution team that secured the conviction of a New York City Police Department officer who brutally tortured Haitian immigrant Abner Luima. There was also the prosecution of the pot mom, a suburban mother turned multi-million dollar marijuana dealer. And then there was the case of a would-be terrorist who tried to blow up the Federal Reserve Bank and one of the largest criminal employ immigrant employment investigations to date. As Attorney General, General Lynch was a champion of LGBT rights, worked to improve relationships between citizens and police, 
led efforts to improve recidivism rates, and introduced a pilot program to provide legal support to military communities in the United States. Notable criminal cases during her tenure included the sentencing of Boston Marathon bomber Jokar Tsanayev, the conviction and sentencing of Charleston church shooter Dylan Roof, the indictment of FIFA officials for racketeering and conspiracy, and the guilty pleas of five of the world's largest banks who admitted to foreign exchange market manipulation. Lynch remarked President Obama, quote, doesn't look to make headlines, she looks to make a difference. That virtue was never more apparent than when she traveled repeatedly to Rwanda in the early 2000s to both train prosecutors and serve as an investigator herself in the mass genocide for the mass genocide crimes committed there in the 1990s. These were arduous and heartbreaking undertakings, and they piled on top of her private practice at the law firm of Hogan and Hartson, and they were performed without glory. Asked what tools one could use to bring about justice in Rwanda, Lynch replied, replied quote, you use the law not because the law is perfect, but because it is the instrument through which we forge justice. That is what Lynch has made of the law throughout her remarkable career, and her work has at least brought us closer to perfection. I have heard her speak twice now, and it is amazing. You are in for a real treat. It is not only that she has done amazing things, but she will inspire you to no end, and I am so glad that you are all here. So please help me welcome Attorney General Lynch. It is such a pleasure to welcome you to Charlottesville and to the law school, and an honor that we have been able to name you the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medalist in Law. Thank you. All. Thank you so much for that warm welcome, uh, and thank you so much, uh, Dean Golubov, for that kind introduction, and also for leaving the microphone at the right level for me. <laughs> Doesn't happen too often. <laughs> and let me offer you my belated congratulations, however, on becoming the first woman dean of the University of Virginia Law School. <laughs> the 21st century recognizing the outstanding contributions of Dean Golubov and also the outstanding faculty and all of you, the students here. It, it is a welcome move. It's a wonderful move. As you know, worldwide, this is known as Mr. Jefferson's University. But for now, this is Ms. Golubov's law school. <laughs> and it's in very, very good hands. Um, I am so honored to receive the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medal in Law. Um, and I want to thank you for inviting me to be present today. It is a deeply humbling experience. Now, as I was preparing this speech, they asked me to talk about, um, actually, they tell you you can talk about whatever you want. And I thought, let's talk about things that are happening in the world today and how the law applies to them. But I was reminded of one of the things that Jefferson once said about lawyers, which all of you who are about to enter the practice will no doubt hear quoted back at you many, many times, that the trade of a lawyer is to question everything to yield nothing, and to talk by the hour. <laughs> now, I come before you not only a lawyer, but also a direct descendant of four generations of Baptist ministers. So, that could be an unsettling thought if you're seated on a hard bench, I understand that. <laughs> but the chairs here look pretty comfortable. Uh, but I do wanna talk to you uh, about the state of the law and the obligations and the responsibility of the law as I see it today. And then I, I do wanna leave some time 
for questions so that we can in fact have a discussion. So the Dean has very graciously agreed to moderate questions at the end of the presentation today so that we can all talk together, which is in fact the way in which the law advances and grows and develops. Now again, this is actually my first visit to the University of Virginia, actually my first visit to Charlottesville, here with my husband, Steve Hargrove, who's seated in the front row with me. My support, my support through all of my many career changes, which you heard about, uh, and has been with me every step of the way, no matter how poor my choices have made us financially. Uh, when he met me, I was a partner in a law firm, and then I went off to Africa to work for free, and I think he thought, hmm, what, what direction are we going in here? <laughs> Um, but I also am looking so much forward to having a chance to talk to all of you. You are the beneficiaries, of course, of a rich tradition of history here at the University of Virginia Law School. It is an excellent training ground for future lawyers. It is an incubator of American leadership. But most importantly, UVA's focus on public service has served the world. It served this community, it served this country, and indeed, it has served the world. And during my tenure as Attorney General, I was tremendously proud to have the portrait of one of UVA's most outstanding graduates on the wall of my conference room, of course, Bobby Kennedy. Now, you can't come to the University of Virginia without thinking about one of those American leaders in particular, of course, Thomas Jefferson, who, of course, designed this campus, inspired uh, the look of the college. I was able to go to the Rotunda for a wonderful lunch here today. But when you look at the beginning of this school, you see and you learn that Jefferson did not want students, he did not want you, to be indoctrinated into just one set of beliefs. He wanted you to be schooled in a mode of thinking, in a way of looking at the world that was, he believed was necessary for a healthy democracy. The way that we look at law and practice law has evolved over 200 years, but the core of it still is how do we look at the law in a way that ensures a healthy democracy? And he wrote to a friend in 1820 about the university writ large. And it's a quote that I do think is useful to consider here today because he wrote, here we are not afraid to follow truth wherever it may lead, nor to tolerate any error so long as reason is left free to combat it. And he felt the same had to be true about the United States, the country that he saw come into existence. He believed that democracy would thrive as long as people could engage in open debate, as long as they could always judge between various perspectives and proposals, and as long as they could, most importantly, put the common good above self-interest. This university was designed to lift up and foster those goals and you only have to set foot here and also listen to the debates going on here. Even the debates on the nature and fullness of Jefferson's own legacy to see that in fact you all are following those ideals. But this university, beautiful as it is, inspiring as it is, is here on the mountain. What about the world outside of this mountain? What about the world beyond this beautiful campus? Where are we? Because actually, I think we may have forgotten Jefferson's other observation that every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. And when we leave this mountain today, do we still take the often difficult path to follow truth, to follow truth wherever it leads? Or do we simply follow 
the ever-increasing volume surrounding the ideas that we already think that we know. Which do we do? Do we tolerate error with reasoned debate? And do we use that debate as an opportunity to learn and to grow? Or do we use error to raise yet another barrier between the volume of our beliefs and the noise of someone else's? And when we do confront a truth, if that truth is uncomfortable or challenging, do we turn toward it to expand our world or do we simply yell our views more loudly? Where is our pursuit of truth today? And it raises the question of, of whether or not we have in fact entered into a post-truth era, one in which facts and evidence have little effect on our public deliberations. And if we are in a post-truth era, or if we are leaning towards it, how do we hold on? to the Jeffersonian ideal, to the University of Virginia ideal, to the legal ideal of the fearless pursuit of truth, wherever it may lead. And in such an era, I submit to you that the role of lawyers, the role of all of you, soon to join this wonderful profession of ours, for whom the search for truth should be at the heart of every endeavor, the role of lawyers takes on special meaning. And that's what I want to focus on today the role of lawyers in a post-truth world, the responsibility of this profession in a post-truth era. Now, of course, as historians in this room will note, and University of Virginia is rife with historians, it is important to bear in mind that partisanship, mere partisanship, is part of the democratic process, and it's as old as this country. And of course, the early republic was hardly a utopia of enlightened debate. Those of you who have followed history, particularly the history of the founder of this university, know that some of the accusations and insinuations published in early American newspapers make Twitter look like the Oxford Union. It is not new what we are engaged in, and sometimes we need to remember that and remember how we have dealt with it in the past. And even Jefferson, for his vaunted ideals, was prone to demonize his opponents. He was part of a political system also, he may not have challenged Alexander Hamilton to a rap battle, but there was no love lost between them. And that was made clear in the publications of the day. He hired people to attack Hamilton in the press. And his contest with John Adams for the presidency in the year 1800 remains one of the ugliest elections that we've ever seen in this country, despite the, the dissonance of 2016. So we have to consider that this is not a new part of the human condition. But are we, in fact, entering a post-truth era where the truth is no longer important, where it's no longer the lodestar or the beginning of our debate? Are we entering an era when to raise an uncomfortable truth means simply to cause a fight rather than a discussion? And I think that Jefferson and his contemporaries, despite the rough and tumble world of their day, which they were well familiar with, they would still be profoundly troubled by the state of American politics today. And again, not so much because of the partisanship, but because of what today's partisanship is doing to our relationship to the truth. And it's all too easy to seal ourselves off from people with whom we disagree. Many of us no longer even debate what's true. We just simply talk louder. We don't talk to each other, we talk at 
each other. And we accomplish nothing with that sound and that fury. Well, now, without the willingness to also test our own beliefs, even the ones that we hold dear, without the humility to value the evidence offered by our opponents, we risk jeopardizing our ability to engage in the kind of honest and productive debates that have always been the lifeblood of democracy. Now, this is a disturbing trend, and as I note, it's not new. But where we are today, I think, calls on those of us who love the law, who love its ability to focus, who love its ability to, to peel away the layers of emotion and find the true issues and the essence of a problem. It raises the issue of what is the responsibility and the role of lawyers in a post-truth era. And as always, in the midst of this type of discussion, these issues aren't resolved overnight. It's part of the ebb and flow of our political life. But I submit to you today that lawyers do have an especially important role to play in helping to restore truth, truth to the center of our society. Now, truth is sometimes inconvenient. It's sometimes messy. It sometimes is not what we want to hear. But when we face it and deal with it, we always move forward. And when we push it away, we always end up worse off. Now, of course, to those cynical minds who think about lawyer jokes and see lawyers as capable of arguing every side of an issue, you might not think that this is the case to make. But for those of us who love the law and its beauty and its complexity, we know that the lifeblood of the law, which is embraced by all great lawyers, is first and foremost a quest for truth. It's also a breadth of perspective and openness of vision and most importantly, a commitment to justice. And when we deploy these in the service of democracy, great things happen. And it's this training, it's these skills, and above all, it is this commitment that is needed now more than ever in our national debate. Now, all of you who are training will follow this. The best lawyers follow the facts. You, find, you simply begin with finding out what happened. Now, you don't let dogma blind you to proof of an issue, whether it supports your theory or not. And the best lawyers seek the most reliable and unbiased evidence to support their case. And as the old saying goes, you're entitled to your own opinion. You absolutely are, but not to your own facts, even be they alternative. <laughs> Writing about his life in the law over a century ago, no less a personage than Mohandas Gandhi said, facts mean truth. And once we adhere to truth, the law comes to our aid naturally. Facts mean truth. And once we adhere to truth, the law comes to our aid naturally. Now there's so many times when I think about the battle for ideas and how the facts and the truth are what lead us to the correct conclusion, or certainly the conclusion that many of us have been working on for years. I will give you some examples. Our recent battles in this country over voting rights, they are an excellent example of the power of facts and the power of truths that cannot be ignored. Now, I think we can all agree that the right to vote is the cornerstone of our democracy. It's, of course, a right that's been made even more precious by the struggles and sacrifices of ordinary Americans who fought 
and died to expand it throughout the 20th century. And of course, that culminated in the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That law was weakened in 2013 by the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder. And what we've seen since then are a number of states passing laws requiring certain forms of voter ID in order to cast the ballot. This has raised a question of both fact and essential truth, because of course, states have the inherent power and indeed the obligation and responsibility to regulate voting, and it is a state-led function. But a review of the facts carried out by the Justice Department during not just my tenure, but that of my predecessor, shows that these laws disproportionately were burdening minority voters. And they were all passed in the name of curbing in-person voter fraud. In-person voter fraud, again, an area with which states have not just the right, but the responsibility to be concerned. But when we peeled back the layers of those assertions and looked at the facts and discerned the objective truth, the facts were and are that there's no credible evidence that in-person voter fraud is a widespread phenomenon. There simply are not waves of people traveling the country dashing into voter booths under someone else's name. We have not seen that. The scholarly and the legal consensus is that cases of voter impersonation are minimal if not non-existence. Now there is evidence of voter fraud and absentee balloting, but the laws that we were looking at when we were considering this issue within the department, the laws passed since Shelby County did not address that issue. But nevertheless, what we still hear with many influential figures, even today, despite legal cases and rulings to the contrary, we will hear people continue to make allegations of rampant in-person voter fraud, hoping perhaps that repetition will suffice for truth. But it has not. It should not. And it is lawyers who have an obligation to ensure that it does not. Now, throughout the Obama administration, the Justice Department that I was proud to lead and to work with during my earlier career stood on the side of the facts. The facts. Bringing suits and filing briefs in dozens of cases, including the challenges to the laws that I've mentioned in Texas and my home state in North Carolina. And it was the facts that vindicated those actions time and time again, as federal courts have consistently invalidated voter ID laws for lack of evidence. Now, many of these victories are not final, and of course the Voting Rights Act itself remains severely uh, conscripted. So the franchise will continue to face new threats. But the recent record in court of these cases, especially in the ruling in the Southern District of Texas just two days ago, makes clear that even in a post-truth world, the facts still matter. The facts lead to the conclusion, and the truth can prevail. And there is no doubt, no doubt about the need for lawyers, for those who are trained to find and follow the facts, to remain vigilant to further assaults on the truth, and with it, further assaults on American ideals. Now, I mentioned other traits that great lawyers have. Great lawyers maintain a breadth of perspective, an openness of mind that allows them to see both sides of an issue, or more than two, as you will often find. 
No lawyer has ever been well served by only considering one side of a case. Those of you who are taking trial advocacy will know this from your preparation materials. And those of you in other, in other branches of the law will also know. You'd have to know not only your opponent's arguments, but their motivations. Not just the weaknesses of their case, but the weaknesses of yours. You can make an argument, but it has to stem from the truth. This is, of course, part of being prepared for trial or an argument or an arbitration. But in the course of that preparation, in the course of seeing your issue from more than one perspective, you actually begin to think in a different way. You become less enamored and tied to your own beliefs simply because they're yours, and you're more likely to appreciate the arguments with which you disagree. More to the point, when you step outside of your perspective and look at the other side, you can hear the fears and the concerns behind the arguments of the other side. You can, you can ascertain the motivations behind the actions that others are taking and the power, the power to truly hear someone else's fears and concerns conveys the power to understand their fears and concerns. And with the power to understand someone else's fears of concerns, you gain the power to find common ground. And with the power to find common ground, you find the power to reach accord, to ascertain and to live by common truths that benefit us all by broadening your mind. And I saw firsthand the power of this breadth of perspective this openness of vision during my tenure as Attorney General, and even earlier, working on one of the most challenging issues of our day, but one that I had put in the list of priorities for me, building stronger relationships between law enforcement agencies and the communities they serve, especially communities of color. Now, to say that this relationship has been strained for generations is, of course, to utter a profound understatement. It's a tension that's rooted both in history and the use of law enforcement as a tool to often deny people of color the most basic privileges of citizenship. But this lack of trust harms all members of society, not just minority groups who don't have the full protection of law enforcement that others take for granted. It harms the efficacy of law enforcement. The lack of trust means that officers cannot do their jobs effectively cannot move into the community freely, and cannot truly protect and serve. And of course, in the present day, we've seen those relationships further severely strained by high-profile incidents and the viral videos that we've all seen of the events surrounding places that have become watchwords for the issue. Ferguson, Baltimore, New York. And there's often very little nuance to the way that these events and these issues are discussed online and in the media. And that's okay because they generate strong opinions. It's fine to have those strong opinions and to express them. That is a part of the American process as well, and it must be protected. But often what happens when these events are discussed, a broad brush is applied to everyone, to both sides of this debate. And what I often saw were nonviolent protesters airing legitimate grievances, often being called out callously and just, just, just being depicted as lawless thugs. Many of the dedicated officers seeking to protect and serve were also painted with the broad brush 
I'm not just being bad officers, but also being racist. Not to say that there isn't instances on both sides, but that broad brush obscures the reality, the humanity, and the discussion that had to happen. And those of us who were working on these issues were often confronted with the breathless question from pundits whenever you'd sit down for an interview, well, who's right? Who's telling the truth? And the armchair observers quickly chose sides, comfortable in their narrow belief that only one side owned the truth, unable to see the truth in someone else's perspective and someone else's pain. So often, before you can ascertain the truth in a particular situation, you have to ascertain the truth in someone else's reality and acknowledge that people will see the world differently from you. And while it does not make them wrong, it gives them a perspective that must be heard. And so this narrow approach is not the one that we could afford to take in these vital cases because it simply perpetuates a cycle of mistrust and indeed of violence. It's not the approach that generates progress because as every lawyer knows, the first step in resolving a seemingly intractable conflict is to ensure that both sides are truly heard. And I've been working on these issues since my days in New York in the 1990s, beginning with the Louima case and continuing with work thereafter. And New York is a place with no shortage of strong opinions. So you will hear a lot of reasons and rationales, a lot of people who felt that they had, in fact, the truth. And they did have vital parts of it, but it needed to be combined. It needed to be put together. And from that day to this, what I've seen is that when you truly listen, you truly listen to both sides, you will often hear the same thing. Don't judge my entire community or my entire profession based on the actions of a few. Don't just look at what I wear, be it baggy pants or dress blues, and assume that you know what is in my heart. And we all want to come home safely at the end of the day. But to hear all these voices, you have to use the lawyer's broader perspective and truly listen. Only then do you literally hear the truth, that we're all in this together, that law enforcement is a joint venture in this country, not a solo enterprise, and that without working on these issues of trust and respect, none of us are safe. So shortly after taking office as the Attorney General, I launched a community policing tour. I went to 12 cities across this great country. I hit every region of this great country. I visited communities that had had a very strained relationship between the police and community members, and it worked to advance and improve it, as well as police departments that were committed to fostering a strong community relationship as well as effective crime prevention. And in every city that had turned this difficult corner, and I saw several, I saw people, community and law enforcement alike, committed to acknowledging their role in the distrust, to hearing each other's pain, and to working together to bring change. I saw people who lived in and loved their city working together, truly listening and finding their common truth and building from there. 
and in every police department making strides in 21st century policing, I saw officers who wanted to make that shift to be the guardians of their community and be in partnership with those under their protection. At every stop, I reinforced the view that the rule of law is not incompatible with community-oriented policing. Indeed, it is made stronger by community-oriented policing. And I emphasize that whether we wear the badge or rely on it for our protection, we all want safer, more united communities. And we can only reach those goals together. And we supported our words of action. Everything from working with local law enforcement departments to ensure constitutional policing, to funding programs that foster mutual respect and understanding, to helping officers receive the equipment that they needed to ensure safety and accountability. Now this is a work in progress. We still have a long way to go in terms of not just restoring but maintaining trust and accountability in this relationship. But the progress that we made shows the importance of raising up all voices and all points of view and working from a position of truth that empowers all. And as we move into a time when many voices are in danger of being marginalized or muffled again, as we move into a time when we are, when we are taking actions that could break those bonds and move backwards in this relationship, we, lawyers, this community, must hold on to the universal truth of the importance of every voice. Now, finally, Lawyers also bring a devotion to justice and equality to public debate. Now, how do we advance the cause of equality, the defining characteristic of the new nation that Jefferson and others founded and the lodestar for this one today? How do we advance the cause of equality in the face of those who see equality as something that can be cabined off and even denied to those with whom one disagrees or whom one does not understand? How do we find justice in such a world if that is the starting point of our debate? We do it by turning to the law, using the template of history and the example of our own constitution to guide us. Now these were the foundations of the Justice Department when we took action on behalf of LGBT rights, especially in Obergefell versus Hodges, and especially in our challenge to North Carolina's law known as HB2. Now, we knew that any action on behalf of LGBT rights would be controversial, especially with public opinion still in flux, but we, we also knew, and our focus was on what the Constitution demanded. The truth of our Constitution is that it demands equal protection of the laws, and that our history shows us the dangers of denying that protection to marginalized groups. This truth has followed us throughout generations. We have tried state-sanctioned discrimination before, resting our laws on a distinction without a difference, and we have seen how it has not only failed, but it has eaten away at the very soul of this country. Those efforts to cabin off equality, to limit it, based upon the perception of someone else. They rely on the myth that has accompanied the resistance to every push for social equality, from emancipation 
to women's suffrage, to voting rights. And the myth to which I refer is the belief that to expand civil rights will somehow mean less for some rather than more for all. And that's not what we've seen. That's not the path that we have taken. And I submit to you that in this post-truth era, we would do well to remember that there are certain truths that we still hold in common, no matter who we are, how we vote, or what we look like. Over 200 years ago, we decided what kind of a country we wanted to be. We have not gotten there yet. The work that all of you will do in the law will join the long path of people who have moved us ever closer. And over generations, we have come far, but it has not been without struggle. It has not been without sacrifice. I'm not here to tell you it will be easy, as a visit to any Civil War battlefield will illustrate the kind of tension that will generate. But even also, the law hasn't always been the best for so many people. We haven't always lived up to the truths that we indeed knew to be self-evident. The law has been used to oppress rather than advance. So I do not mean to tell you now that the law is perfect. What I need to tell you is that you have the ability to use it to always find the truth. And in situations where the law has gone in the other way, we have turned to our courts, we've turned to you, to lawyers young and experienced to help advance our truths. It was once legal to own people in this country. It was once legal that women could not vote in this country. All of those things, it was once legal that people did not have the right for equal education in this country. Those were advanced by the law. And that's why it is so important to learn the lessons of law and history. Because the advances that we have made, and they have indeed been many. I stand before you the beneficiary of so many of them. But the advances that we have made towards that more perfect union of the founders' dreams and still ours have come about when we have faced the hard truths and the realities of our world and we have pushed forward to improve it. Every group fighting for equality has used the law to open our society for the benefit of all. We have built on progress. We have built on equality. We have built on advancement. And we've all been the beneficiaries of that. So when we see the law, that precious instrument, that is so important to all of us. When we see the law being used again to narrow opportunity, to foster division, we, all of us, we have a responsibility to use truth to examine those issues, to use truth to counteract that slide backwards, and to use truth to make sure that we see clearly the direction in which we are going. And this university exemplifies that. Like so many others, you're grappling with the legacy embodied in the contradictory life of your very founder. But the truth of all aspects of that life frees this entire community to grow and to own all parts of this beautiful university. And so what I want to leave you with today is as we consider 
the role of lawyers in a post-truth era. It is, in fact, a huge one. But you are the best. You are prepared for this. Yes, it's challenging. That's why we're coming to you. Yes, it will be difficult. That's why you're training now. Because lawyers have a responsibility to continue to search for the truth amid the sound and fury of modern-day discussions. They have an obligation to bring truth forward, even when people want to ignore it. But most importantly, and never forget this, you have the incredible privilege, and it is a privilege, of standing for the truth to the benefit of all. And may your search that has begun here sustain you throughout your career as it has me. So I want to thank you for letting me spend a few minutes today talking to you about what I see as the benefits and the obligations of you, the next generation of those, to enter this wonderful profession of ours. I welcome you to it, and I cannot wait to see what you will achieve. Thank you so very much.